This is the Writers Forum, and I'm Mike Tusa, your host. Today, we're talking with Grammy Award-winning musician, producer, composer, and actor Chris Thomas King about his new book, The Blues, The Authentic Narrative of My Music and Culture. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks for having me. No problem. Hey, you know, let's jump right in. Your book is divided into two sections. The first is your history of the blues, and the second is, in essence, an autobiography that I think ties back in quite nicely. How did you come to write a revised history of the blues? What prompted you? Well, uh, the, the raising, when the city of Baton Rouge uh, raised my father's uh, jug joint, a place that I had come of age in, <clears throat> which he opened in 1979, that spurred um, uh, the idea that I needed to do something with that story because it was a part of Louisiana history, a part of blues history that was not going to be there. But then after Katrina, uh, doing Katrina and then later with my father ailing and getting Alzheimer's, we hired Louisiana State University and myself hired a folklorist to start getting stories out of him on his good days. And that was the genesis of writing some type of memoir about Tabby's Blues Box, my dad's uh, jig joint and heritage hall. But as I began writing that, uh, I realized the blues did not have a history. And it was on me to decide if I was going to go down that road or not. And I decided to go down that road and see where it leads. Okay. Well, there's a tremendous amount of research in this book. And, and in fact, folks, if you read it, if you're like me, when I read it, I kept running across names that I had never heard of before. How long did it take you, Chris, to pull all this research together? I was very naive at the beginning because, you know, first of all, I had to find my voice as a writer, you know, uh, which I didn't have a voice as a writer because this was my first um, book. And um, I thought I would be writing uh, a kind of personal journal. And that would take, you know, I'm thinking a couple of years or something. But because I, the more I dug and the more I learned that the blues did not have a history, I wanted to find out what the actual authentic history of this music was in this culture. But more than that, why were we lied to? Why was it whitewashed? And not only why was it uh, white, whitewashed, but, you know, how that, you know, kind of a sociology type of thing, how did that affect, you know, the culture and black people and, the, and, and this... Um, and now we have this kind of fairy tale or fairy tale story about this this music and culture that I think this book exposes and and um, and that's kind of what the it, it absolutely does. So yeah. let's do this for our listeners because everybody may not be a blues aficionado. Mm-hmm. Tell us what the orthodox or the traditional view of how the blues originated was, and then we'll talk about what your discovery is. And if you want to do that by reading a section of your book or whatever, that's fine. Yeah, very briefly, I think everybody have learned in school or just kind of have learned from you know popular information. They believe that the blues uh, somehow came from Africa with the slaves, and the slaves were playing the banjo or singing and they were doing work songs, and they, they, they enjoyed singing on the slave ship, and they enjoyed singing when they were in chains and working, and, you know, when they would be behind a mule doing a field holler, and these are the roots of the blues. And then at some point, some slave got the idea to take a, a piece of board 
and tie a piece of twine, a fishing twine or something to one end and fishing twine to the other end. And he started making a sound. And after he made that sound, he started moaning and moaning and groaning, got the blues and, and the blues were born. And, and, and we talking like, and that's, that's the story that we have. And this happened supposedly in a place we call the Mississippi Delta in northern Mississippi. And that's, and you know, and that's the beginning of black music in America. That's the beginning of black musical culture in America. Well, that's the traditional view, right? That's, that's what we all believe Correct. until this book comes along to expose that. Right. Yes. And so tell us a little bit about what you discovered. And again, if you want to read from it or you want to just talk about what you discovered about the real origin of the blues and where it happened. Yeah. Now, I always had a hunch and I never totally bought into the whole Robert Johnson sold to his soul to the cross at the crossroads to the devil and all this stuff here. But uh, but I, but I had a hunch, but I had to find primary evidence and do a lot of research and dig. And that's why it took me 10 years to to finish this manuscript, to finish this book. So I'm going to read from my prologue, and that'll give some people some insight. And this is after, um, yeah, so this is midway into the prologue. African Americans of my generation turned their backs on the blues after it was redefined by white usurpers in the 1960s and 70s. We survived, ironically, thanks to white supporters. Today, the blues is a white musical genre dominated by whites on and off stage, a conundrum I've grappled with over the years. Consequently, to make sense of the whitewashing of my music and culture, I developed an interest in literature on the subject. What I read astonished me. The dehumanizing characterizations, misinformation, and lies about the musical tribe from which I ascend were disturbing. Based on such sophistry, it's no wonder black people abandoned the blues. The, historic, the, the, historiolo, the his, historiography of the blues was built by white sociologists, folklorists, and record collectors. Their recordings and documents are indispensable. Indeed, I commend them for preserving and documenting non-commercial aspects of my culture that may have otherwise gone unnoticed. Despite that, I have a big problem with their pseudoscientific uh, conclusions that were formed in large part by their own privileged status during the Jim Crow era. When deciphering such artifacts, a critical, a critical examination of their books, articles, and personal journals revealed that nearly all held an astonishing amount of conversation toward their Negro subjects, whom they uh, recast as exotic primitives and noble savages. Moreover, the, this motley crew, motivated by greed, purposely obfuscated the truth, replacing it instead with myths, fairy tales, and half-truths. As a consequence, I have been alienated from my own culture. The blues was invented in the 1990s by black Creoles in New Orleans, Louisiana. Whites rebranded New Orleans blues, which preceded blues from the Mississippi Delta uh, by more than two decades. They rebranded it Dixieland Jazz. In the early 1900s, the word Dixieland in the black psyche connotes Confederate romanticism. The early rebrand and whitewash of the blues, there would be many others, swing, rock and roll, etc., was an attempt to crown the original Dixieland jazz band, Sicilians from New Orleans, kings of the blues. 
The band was led by a racist trumpeter named Nick LaRocca, the son of poor Sicilian immigrants. Following the original Dixieland Jazz Band's popular 1917 debut, Lively Stable Blues, a minstrel ripoff, minus the blackface, of black Creole artistry, ODJB fan clubs sprung up around the country. By the 1930s, all classic New Orleans blues innovations were rebranded Dixieland Jazz, crowning LaRocca in dispossessing blues originators such as Buddy Bolden, Jelly Roll Martin, King Oliver, Bunk Johnson, Lonnie Johnson, the guitarist, and Louis Armstrong. Moreover, the Confederate rebranding of the blues acted as a repellent to black musicians everywhere. Erecting Dixieland jazz was similar to erecting con Confederate monuments to Robert E. Lee or Jefferson Davis and the American psyche. Such maneuvers were designed to marginalize black achievement and perpetu perpetuate white supremacy. Dropping the word Dixieland, but retaining the mindless word jazz, which has no African or Creole meaning, was similar to my high school dropping Robert E., but retaining Lee as in Lehigh. It's just as offensive. According to pioneer and blues clarinetist Sidney Bechet, jazz was what white folks called the blues. Trumpet legend Miles Davis would often scold critics for using the word jazz to describe his music. Quoting Miles Davis, quote, it's a nigger word, unquote, Miles said of jazz to the New York Times in 1981. Miles Davis believed the term jazz was used to diminish the important contributions blues made to the world of music because it was identified with blacks. It is extremely important formerly colonized peoples wrestle the power of definition away from post-colonizers. And I'll stop there. Okay. So you're placing, tell me if, I'm, if I understand this correctly, you, you've placed the origin and moved it from the Delta to New Orleans, right? That's right. And and to the specifically to around the 1890s exactly okay now in that context i believe i have this right you suggested that there's no coincidence that the birth of the blues in new orleans coincided with the landmark supreme court decision plessy versus ferguson yeah that's what the the black newspapers at the time many of them were written in french uh the that the family rudolph desdunes who was the leader of the committee that um, brought the case Duplessis versus Ferguson um, by using his son, a musician, Dan 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 Dunez, uh, to ride the bus. I mean, ride the the the, the streetcar in the white section and be arrested, and they bailed him out. But they weren't on a federal train, so they tried it again with a new neighbor, and that that's how we we led to uh, took a couple of years, but they worked it all the way up to the Supreme Court, and that was a very obviously a very important case. It was a time when the Creole black way of life in Louisiana was being annexed by uh, Americanization, by Anglo-Saxon white Protestants, and their lifestyle where they had agency, they had businesses, cig cigar stores, factories, they had an opera, a hundred-piece black opera, I mean, a hundred-piece black philharmonic orchestra that they supported. They had the wealth to support that and the leisure to support that in the 1830s during the height of slavery. They had their own theater. So they had a way of life that was, dis that was um, despised by uh, 
Anglo-Americans that came into Louisiana because they wanted to come into Louisiana and bring the British, um, the British mores and, and, and conventions and racism. Not that there wasn't racism in Louisiana. It was, you know, most, one of the most horrible places for a slave to be shipped to. But there was manumission. There was ways to buy your freedom. There were uh, laws um, through uh, the Catholic and Spanish laws that uh, gave blacks in Louisiana agency that they could not have gotten in places like Virginia and South Carolina. So during the Plessy versus Ferguson uh, thing in Louisiana, the, the black people in Louisiana began to creolize things that the Anglos held sacred. There's the sacred church songs, like when the saints go marching in, they'll take that and flip it and make it a Saturday night anthem. Um, and we know what happens when people play that type of song, even today on Bourbon Street. And because of the lewdness and, 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 and everything that went along with it, they will call that the devil's music. But when you are rebelling against the church, uh, the, the Church of Rome, or you know, like Martin Luther did many years ago or whomever, you're always going to be persecuted as being, you know, uh, an agent of the devil. And that's how the blues got its pejorative, you know, was from the Anglo-Saxon Protestant um, pushback. And they had blue laws all over the place where you couldn't dance on a Sunday. You can't go to a ball. You can't go to Congo Square and do your music. You can't do all these things that you can't do in moral codes, these blue laws. That is the, that was the yin and yang of the, of the tug of war that led to the, that was, that was the preamble. All through the 1800s, that was the preamble to the blues. And it kind of burst out of New Orleans and the uh, free expression and musicians like Buddy Bolden, Jelly Roll Martin, especially uh, Lonnie Johnson, King Oliver, and so many others. Well, you, you know, it's interesting because you also lay out in the book the historical difference between what blacks, African-Americans lived like in New Orleans versus what they lived like in other parts of the country. So you really had, and this is a, a, it's a minimal, but you really had a little bit of a freer culture for some African-Americans down here in New Orleans. And you think that may have played into the genesis? Because now they're feeling the suppression or oppression of separate but equal under Plessy. Yeah, something is being taken away. Yeah. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of these free blacks uh, left New Orleans, but New Orleans is so complicated when it comes to culture. It was, it was a French colony, then the Spanish, then French again. And the Haitians came in. And so we just don't have enough time to go into, you know, we're in New Orleans, so most of the people listening in, in New Orleans at least um, have some sense of that history. But, but um, to bring it back to um, this idea of blues, what the difference between the British colonies in Louisiana and La Florida, places like this that were Spanish, was very different. But what is really... Uh, an eye-opener is that people have been hypnotized to believe that there was black culture in the Mississippi Delta during slavery. And my findings is, are that there were, no, there were never any black slaves in this mythologized place we call the Mississippi Delta in Mississippi. No black people were there. And, and, it, and we've been hypnotized because the, colloquially, uh, the state of Mississippi is one with the river. 
and sociologists and, you know, with, with their eugenic uh, uh, methods and things, uh, rebranded the Mississippi Delta to be the beginning of black culture. So when people say that this is where the blues came from, they're also saying this is the beginning of black musical culture and black culture, cultural expression that happened in Mississippi Delta. And we don't have to decide, well, what kind of music were they playing in the Mississippi Delta versus New Orleans? In 1895, there were no, there were no black people in the Mississippi Delta playing any kind of music. It just didn't. The only thing was there were black bears, wild, you know, Florida panthers and wild wolves. And all through slavery, there were no slaves there. Uh, the plantations were along the river, and most of the cotton picking and plantation work were done across the river in Louisiana. But, like, you know, Natchez had, a, you know, some mansions and things. But there are no slave quarters even in the Mississippi Delta. There's no history there. What it was, and the real, you know, just to, just to wake people's conscience up, that was uh, everything north of I-20 between, because Vicksburg, Vicksburg is not seen as being part of the Delta. Jackson, Mississippi is not part of the Delta. You have to go north of northern Mississippi, below Tennessee, you know, near Arkansas and places like that to get in what the blues people called the birth of the blues and that, that Alan Lomax and people like that said it, it, where it happened. But uh, just trigger your, your memory to, to understand that that was the Chickasaw Nation. Only Native Americans were in northern Mississippi above Jackson, above Vicksburg, uh, until Andrew Jackson did his sign the Trail of Tears and began driving those people out of there and moving them to Oklahoma. So there were no white people in the Mississippi Delta in Antebellum, and there were no black people. Now, they did try to make a little start, but the Civil War came, and they never got the levees built, and it, so it just never happened. So that's a... That whole thing about the blues coming from slavery, work songs, and things like this, it's just a fairy tale. Well, and your book does a great job of, of kind of destroying that, that image. Let me ask you this. I imagine, before you turn to reading the next uh, section, there were numerous people that you discovered in your research that you, you didn't know about before. Are there any that, you know, for the reader, because I know when I read it, 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 you sent me down different trails to go learn about new people. Mm-hmm. Are there any that really stood out to you that you said, you know, this is this is something I had no idea about or someone? Yeah, the biggest revelation to me was that this whole idea of, of black folk music and the blues began with eugenics. And I wasn't really familiar with, you know, uh, people like uh, Charles Davenport and F- Franklin Giddings and this whole eugenic society, and that that was the beginning of of um, what we call the blues. Not only that, but the way that we define the blues today, to even be part of the genre and to be on a blues festival as a black performer, the criteria is, is very different from a white performer. A black performer is still measured by eugenic calipers, you know, um, the, let me give you some definitions so people can follow what I'm, what I'm saying. I have four definitions um, that I need to give you before we go a little bit farther. So um, what you have to understand is that the blues and the way black people were um, portrayed in in media and mocked in media and stuff like this is that it's primitivism. Primitivism was a huge thing in in the art movement. It was, it was, um, what's what's the famous um, Picasso, 
you know, would use, you know, primitivism and throw some some pieces of that into some of his paintings, and that would make them exotic, and people would go wild for them in Europe and places. But primitivism was premium, and um, and that, that that's very important uh, to understand. And there were cultural brokers uh, who brokered in Negro primitivism. Mm -hmm. They would find artifacts and sell them to the market and stuff like this. And record collecting, as far as blues record and, and folk record and hot jazz record collecting, this was all about how the most finding the most primitive records, because they felt that these records uh, represented if if the Negro is primitive and a noble savage, so to speak, then their music, in order to be true to their to their to who they are being less than human that their music has to um, have to solidify that or, or be an expression of that primitivism so the more the more primitive the, the music sounded the, the more authentic it, it was seen as being and more and the more more valuable uh, for the uh, cultural brokers these primitive they, they broke it in Negro primitivism when I say Creole a definition for Creole that I'm using in my book is the original meaning that the Spanish and Portuguese use to distinguish an African born in a Spanish, Spanish territory versus an African born in Africa and brought directly into America. And they use that word in there, you know, to distinguish slaves that were born in the Spanish territory. Uh, and we're not talking about mixed race. It had nothing to do with mixed race. It's just that both of your parents might have come over on a boat during the Atlantic slave trade, but you were born in the Spanish territory. It means that you're going to be more malleable or maybe a little bit more valuable. You're going to be able to speak some French or some kind of Creole language. You're going to be um, a little bit more, um, we can conjole you into uh, accepting your faith as a slave, so to speak. Uh, so Creole is a, is a distinction I'm using in the book to speak of Africans. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, okay, and this thing about the Mississippi Delta. Well, the uh, well, let me let me give you the definition of the word blues. The definition of the word blues in my book. Uh, we have a definition of the blues now that's an Anglo definition, an English definition that means melancholy, sad, down in the dumps, uh, brokenhearted, woe is me, that type of thing. And then we take that Anglo definition and, and kind of associate that with slavery. Well, the, of course, these people must have been miserable. So they were doing these work songs and they were singing this music. And so you kind of equate all that together. But what people have to understand is that in Louisiana, the black people spoke Creole. The black newspapers were written in French. Um, the committee that put together the fight for Plessy versus Ferguson, it was a French Newspaper. Now, they might also have printed some things in um, English, but Rudolph Des Dunes wrote the first history of the Creole people, mm -hmm. and he wrote it in French. So Jelly Roll Martin's parents uh, spoke French. People spoke French as a first language up until the 1930s. And even when I was a boy, you know, you can go out into the, to the you know, in the Cajun country, and every, nobody really spoke English, you know, in, in West Louisiana. And they only started speaking English, you know, um, in the 70s, really, you know. So um, the word blues uh, that the New Orleans musicians used, that King Oliver used, 
and that musicians used when they made the Jelly Roll Blues, Buddy Bolden Blues, 219 Blues, Basin Street Blues, you know, and on and on and on. What they were expressing was a, cre a black Creole expression of being proud of your culture, despite the fact that, and the fact that the Anglos hated it, you know, it was like a badge of honor almost. It was subversive music and meant to be that way. It was music of enlightenment. And the definition is of blues in French is blue entertainment, meaning that uh, soccer blue or, they, or, or the blue laws, you know, mocking the blue laws, uh, a soccer deal, you know, cursing something that is held sacred. And, um, and that's part of uh, free expression. That's part of what enlightenment uh, is. And that's part of what having freedom of being free in America, having agency, that's the definition of it. So Richard Pryor was a blue comic. Uh, Dave Chappelle today, people would say he's a blue comic. You might hear something he's saying, you say, holy shit, you know, did he say that? Can he get away with saying that? But he's saying those, those words and using um, this shocking language to uh, enlighten you. And that's what makes it art. Whereas any old person you can find on the street can, can cuss you out like a sailor. But can you do what Richard Pryor did? Can you do what uh, Dave Chappelle was doing? Can you do what these blues musicians did, with, which take this music and enlighten you with it? You know, show you that there's nothing wrong with you, with your sensuality. There's nothing wrong with, with you, you know. You, because you're not Victorian and all these kinds of, you know, and a lot of that was hypocritical anyway. You know, in other words, um, the blues uplifted and, 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 uh, and enlightened the common, you know, person. Real quick, I got you on mute. You want to read one more section? Because then we got to end. Yeah, okay. Let me get you, if you can, to read one more section of the book before we wrap it up. All right. So this is a, a chapter called, which I think is the crucial point of the book. Uh, and it's something that was a revelation to me, like when you asked me earlier, this was a revelation. I didn't know that eugenics played such a role in uh, defining this music and still does today. The Souls of Primitive Black Folk is, is the title of the section. The land where the blues supposedly began has a long history of investigations by social scientists and folklorists, yet evidence of the blues originating in the Mississippi Delta is unfounded. What we have instead is folklore rooted in eugenics. The twisted fantasies of eugenicists, their fairy tales and folklore imposed upon the Delta folk was rooted in scientific racism. Eugenic data collectors with nefarious agendas under the guises of sociolo sociologists and folklorists roamed the Deep South in the early 20th century recording prisoners, chain gangers, and peonage slaves. Their collection methodologies were designed to demonize for the general public the souls of black folk. If the Negro was proven to be inferior bi biologically and mentally, racist government policies of social control would have scientific and academic cover. There would be no moral obligation then to invest in equalitarian programs and policies. If the Negro problem was innate, it would then be prudent to, pro, to protect the superior race by investing in segregation, policing, and prison warehouses. And I'll skip a, a little further in this chapter. 
and go to people might have all kinds of ideas about eugenics, but I'm going to go a little farther to where I talk about eugenics and music, which, like I said, was a revelation to me. One sphere of the movement was musical eugenics. Psychological experiments and tests were developed by eugenic psychologist Carl E. Seashore under the guidance of Charles Davenport and Madison Grant, thought leaders to wealthy and powerful industrialists. Seashore, with the bagging of George Eastman, Kodak millionaire and the founder of the Eastman School, was developing a program to perform psychometric tests to determine uh, musical ability and measure inherited musical talents. His goal was to breed into, to breed into being superior Anglo musicians. These supermen with Nordic features would compose the finest high art music, thus imbuing America's exceptional culture with elite eugenicist ethos. This may sound nuts today, but eugenics, uh, but eugenic beliefs were mainstream in the United States for much of the first half of the 20th century. It remains an unspoken influence on public policy debates over how much funding is provided for policing and prisons versus schools and healthcare in majority black communities. Eugenics didn't earn its evil reputation until Adolf Hitler adopted the program and took it to its ultimate conclusion with his obsession to create a superior Aryan race. Another sphere of musical eugenics that grew to become the matrix of folk blues encouraged field recording, recordings of the, quote, feeble-minded Negro in his natural habitat for eugenicist laboratories under the veil of folk. It was believed the field recorder could make photo phonographic recordings of the Negro's mind for scientific analysis, thus proving once and for all scientifically the racist intellectual inferiority was innate. In 1907, Howard W. Odom took up his wax cylinder recorder, saddled up his mare, and rode out from Oxford, Mississippi into the edge of the Delta frontier, not to document Negro folk songs, but to collect data for eugenic laboratories. The 1840 census had found that only 2,000 enslaved blacks were held in Panola County, bearing in mind that when they weren't <laughs> tied to whipping posts, they were preoccupied battling malaria, typhoid, and yellow fever. The question becomes, did those enslaved Africans create an original musical culture or give birth to the blues? Odom's field trip to study the Negro in his, in his habitat and record its songs wasn't intended to answer such questions. Besides, he had never heard of a music called blues. Odom wasn't a talent scout and had no musical training when he sought out informants among the descendants of Panola in the adjacent Lafayette County. Odom recorded the sound waves of the Negro cranium in the same spirit that Third Reich eugenicists took up calipers to provide hard and objective, quote, proof of black inferiority. The songs he captured were beside the point of his mission. He, the carefully selected Panola County and Lafayette County descendants, those who fit his eugenic criteria, sung either a cappella or with a, uh, amateur accompaniment into his 10-horn graphophone cylinder recorder. 
what 23-year-old Howard W. Odom recorded shocked his wasp sensibilities. Quote, their songs tell of every phase of immorality and filth, he wrote, sung by individuals who revel in their suggestiveness. So um, basically... So I'll stop there. There's okay. more. Okay. Well, this is all the time we have for today. Okay. I'd like to thank you, Chris, for coming in today. We've been discussing Chris's new book, um, The Blues, The Authentic Narrative of My Music and Culture. Um, if you want to get more information about the book, you can check Chris's website, christhomasking.com. He also has a podcast. I think you're four or five episodes into that podcast. Mm-hmm. We've been, you've been listening to the Writers Forum today. Uh, I'm your host, Mike Tusa. Until next time.